0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we learn about blessings that come from conflict. As we learn about your providence as you work through these things in interpersonal disputes between brothers in Christ that end up redounding to the benefit of your kingdom. We thank you that you are sovereign in all these things. We thank you for the clarity of your word. And I pray that you would reveal it to us this afternoon. Pray for a movement of the spirit without which my words have no power. I pray that you would impart these things to the souls of your people. And we pray that even today the rebellion of those who do not know you would end and they would bow the knee before you in submission. We praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the many who make saviors out of the early church saints and gods out of the early church leaders, Acts 15 is a great gift. In the events that culminated in the ecumenical council, we saw divergent views In laity, we saw a very human kind of confusion as well, and um, real anxiety, in particular in the Antiochian believers. But we also saw shared wisdom. We saw total unity, though not uniformity, in leadership. But as we proceed now to the end of the chapter, we will see that sometimes, even amongst the best-intentioned and the most sincere, tested, and established Christian leaders... Consensus cannot be found, and instead there can be, and at times are, moments of sharp contention that have significant and lasting consequences, because saints are not saviors, church leaders are not gods. Paul and Barnabas spoke the truth when they said to the Lysaonians, we are just men of the same nature as you. And this, of course, is true of all of us. Even as Christian men, we're still just men irrespective of our roles within the body, we have various passions, some greater than others. One man weighs this Christian principle more heavily in this situation than another does. One man sees a hard red line where another sees a step too far, but not so far that that man can't be put back on the proper course. But at no point does either man in a two-man conflict or any man period see into the future And observe the final outcome of his decisions. A man has the word. He has his experience handling the word. And he has hindsight to help guide him. And he has his own anecdotal experience. But aside from the word, these things are incomplete guides. And so we apply the word through them, hoping and expecting a certain outcome in a given situation, but not knowing what that outcome will be in so many situations. So every sincere Christian man does the best that he can to apply what he knows so that when he stands before Christ to give an account, he is not ashamed. But in a situation where there is no clear, thus saith the Lord, at some point you have to be content with, we did the best that we could with the information that we had and the application of the principles to which we hold. For reasons such as these and because of a disagreement of this kind, today we will see what was perhaps the greatest missionary duo in the history of the church separate over irreconcilable differences in a sort of custody dispute over one John Mark. And through this study, we will learn lessons of inestimable value, lessons about leadership and acting in real time in a fallen world without a clear mandate when you're applying principles, when precepts have not been given. And ultimately, we will learn about how God takes what we break and sometimes uses it and often to create an even greater yield for the kingdom of his son. We're going to be covering Acts 15, verses 36 through 41, which means that we will conclude our study of this chapter. We will exegete verse by verse. At the same time, we'll handle some significant application. But then after we have worked our way all the way through the text, we will return to make additional application beyond that, and we will handle this in points. So begin with me in Acts 15, verse 36. After some days, this would be an indeterminate period of time but probably of uh, relatively significant length, so months, maybe a year, and this is after the Jerusalem Council, of course. Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, we're going to pause here for a moment, and I'll say to you that some truths of the Christian faith are buried deep, and often what covers them is the remnants of our fallenness, which is the flesh. Now understand that these things which are obscured are plainly taught, so it isn't God who obscured them. As Paul said elsewhere, though, when we see ourselves, we often do so through a dim mirror. And so the plane is made muddy by our sin. And the issues that fall into this category are not the same to the same degree from Christian to Christian. I am strong where some of you are weak. You are strong where I am weak in given areas. But certain matters are across the board instinctive for all who are actually indwelt by the Spirit of God. And not leaving newborn Christians over whom you have parentage to fend for themselves post-conversion is one of these. And that is what Paul and Barnabas here demonstrate. And I say this is instinctive because seeking the company of those whom God gave you as spiritual children is pure joy. And typically you don't have to twist the arm of a person to get them to seek their own joy. And so we don't have to be persuaded to seek out those that the Spirit has borne by our witness. And the apostle of love expressed this instinct with great grace and great affection. 1 John 2, 1, when he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, For some of you, you have not yet had the joy of seeing the Spirit give birth to an infant in Christ born as a result of your witness as God uses your ministry. But when you do, You will come to me, as many have, and you will ask me many questions about how you can help them, how you can disciple them, and I will encourage you with respect to these. But one thing that I will certainly not need to do and have never needed to do is to encourage one who is in this situation to seek the company of the soul that has been born through their ministry, because the only thing greater than seeing a child born into this world is seeing a child born into heaven. And as it is with natural parents, we love seeing first breaths. We also want to see first steps. We want to see all the milestones that come after that too. But with spiritual newborns, we have the blessed knowledge that this life did not spawn from the dust, and so it will never return to it. The life of every one of God's children is eternal. And then add to this fact that we get to contribute to this now living soul's welfare. This side of heaven, there is no greater blessing than this. Now imagine Paul and Barnabas. They are not returning to a spiritual child. They are returning to overfilled nurseries in a multitude of cities, all bursting with their spiritual children. And in fact, given the rapid spread of the seed of Abraham's seed grandchildren already, and I'm sure great-grandchildren. Because do you know what Christians do all the time? We evangelize all the time. And God uses that for the rapid multiplication of the church which is happening so you have generations already that have been built. I wish I could just stop here. This is a happy thought and I'd like to stop on a happy thought but I cannot do this because their behavior is especially noteworthy in our day because there is an office that derives its name from Scripture and yet owes nothing of its nature to Scripture and unfortunately that refers to every office defined by Scripture in our day, so I'm going to have to narrow it down and be a lot more specific. I am referring to the office of evangelist, which is that which Paul and Barnabas are presently occupying. But perhaps somebody may say, well, Paul and Barnabas are church planters. Yes, that is correct. The evangelist and the church planter are one and the same. It is through evangelism that churches get planted. Now, Philip is the only one actually named in the New Testament as an evangelist. Timothy, though, is told to do the work of an evangelist in a pastoral epistle. So that is to be true of all of us. So again, these men are evangelists. But what none of the men that I just mentioned are, not Philip, uh, not the apostles, not Timothy... And what Scripture knows nothing of is men who claim to bring hundreds and thousands into the kingdom, moving from church to church, but who never look back. And yet men like this are legion in this culture. When I do jobs for people that I know, jobs on their house, construction, and I just did this with Ben, I make the same stale joke, but I still find it funny. I say after I'm done, I say, I want you to know you have a warranty. I call it my taillight warranty, which is to say, after I leave, when the job is done and I get far enough away to where you no longer see my taillights, you no longer have a warranty. (laughs) Obviously, I'm joking. But for men like this, they see their ministries that way. And isn't that strange to never look back? Wouldn't you want to follow up even just for joy's sake? Well, you would if there were actual babies born there, but not if there's nothing but stillborns in your wake. And that is the issue. They are not making converts. They are making false converts. But then also one problem feeds another, sort of like a septic system that's backed up, and so you've got sewage flowing in both directions. First, there's no follow-up. I say doesn't know what's behind him, but because there is no follow-up, his errant methods never change. If you never look back, you never see the errors that you need to correct, and so you never do correct them what accounts for this counter-instinctive, deeply unnatural lack of desire to joy over the new life that your gospel has spawned? How about the knowledge that no new life has been spawned? I.e., the knowledge that after your address, hands were raised and cards were filled out, but no converts were actually made because to convert is to change, and these children of the devil have not. And I used to ascribe this sort of ministry to ignorance, but now I believe it to be willful ignorance, which is to say a kind of deliberate evil. If There is no converts, then there is also no money. And so we will claim that there are converts so that the money keeps rolling in to support our ministries. And we won't find the souls that went on to live like hell after we promised them heaven, for the same reason that a criminal just never can seem to find a cop. Now, for Paul and Barnabas, there's not nearly the dollars involved in real evangelism that there is in fake evangelism in our day, but there is so much joy in seeing these babes in Christ. And beyond joy, there is also a blessed obligation. We are not the sorts of spiritual fathers as true ministers of the gospel who miss child support payments. We recognize that it is our sacred responsibility to take milk drinkers and mature them into meat eaters with God's word. But what we don't do is leave the nursery unattended or understaffed because God has not dealt thus with us. Pastors equip the saints for the work of service. We don't leave fledglings to fend for themselves. We don't expect them to figure it out on their own. If we were dealing with the Ethiopian eunuch, we would commend him to the providence of God because he's going back to Ethiopia and that's all that we can do. But in regular church life, you and I are the providence of God to mature these into strong Christians that can withstand the wiles of the devil. And perhaps you are one that was not given proper discipleship, brother or sister, join the club. Many of us are in that same club with you. But if this is true, then we of all people should know how much new believers need people like us. We are the culmination of many decades of failure and success, and we are all the beneficiaries of all the lessons learned through this process. And we have the opportunity to impart the wisdom to those who have just left the starting gate. Wisdom of the kingdom. And imagine what they can do for the kingdom of Christ if they begin with that wisdom that we have ended with, or that we have accumulated over these many years. And also recognize that that wisdom doesn't belong to you. That was given by God. It belongs to him. That is your talent. You can't bury it in the ground. It is to be invested in the kingdom of Christ, which is to say it is to be invested in the sheep of Christ. And all of this is understood by Paul and Barnabas. And that's why they're returning instead of abandoning, and they will return, just not together, because... Continuing in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now, there are two things that you need to understand here before we move forward. And the first is the nature of what John Mark has done. And the second is the extent of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. First, what John Mark is guilty of is not less than desertion, according to the text. Now, John Mark wasn't a slave of Paul. Surely he could have taken leave of his post for a time for some family emergency or another. Ostensibly, he could have left for a number of reasons. Seems unlikely that he signed some sort of forever pact. But the way that he left seems to be the issue. These missionaries were constantly subject to threats against them. Paul has recently, in our study anyhow, survived attempted murder. And to add to this, one of the men who Paul and Barnabas relied upon most in all the world left them. And given the context, I don't think it's over the top to say that John Mark left them to die. Now there's a silly discussion amongst commentators about the nature of Mark's exit and whether it was really that bad. I don't think there needs to be a discussion, considering that Luke uses the term deserted. I feel like that settles the matter. John Mark crossed a red line, period. Now then to the second issue, which is the extent of the disagreement. How big a fight, big a problem this actually was. Let me ask you, are you familiar with the English word paroxysm? I'm sure that just earlier you were having a conversation with your spouse on the way to church, and paroxysm probably came up a dozen times, but if it didn't, let me give you a definition for this term. It is a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. Let me give you its synonyms also. They include spasm, attack, fit, burst, bout, convulsion, seizure, outburst, outbreak, eruption, explosion, and flare-up. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because the root of the English word paroxysm is the Greek term paroxysmos. And that is the term that Luke uses to describe what has occurred between Paul and Barnabas at the end of Acts 15. So with that understood, let me read those synonyms to you again. Spasm, attack, fit burst, bout, convulsion, seizure, outburst, outbreak, eruption, explosion, and flare-up. as I said last time, there are no shrinking violets in church leadership in the early church, just men, men who all act like men. And the issue of keeping John Mark is important enough to Barnabas that he will dissolve his ministry with Paul before he will discard him. And discarding John Mark is important enough to Paul that he will also discard Barnabas as a ministry partner, if need be, in order to accomplish this end. And all of this will be fleshed out thoroughly in a forthcoming time of more thorough application. But until then, here is the end of this account, verses 40 and 41. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what was one became two. And these two teams proceeded to the same work that the single original team was committed to. And with respect to what remains to be said of this, it will be covered In the points of application that I promised to you earlier, and we will launch into the first one, point number one is sometimes decisions aren't right or wrong. Now, that statement itself may strike you as being very wrong, but ask yourself, what makes a decision right or wrong? And well, the answer is very clearly whether or not it aligns with God's word. But then the further that you work away from explicit commands and the closer you get toward applications that are not explicitly commanded, the more prudential a decision becomes. And prudential also means, at least to some degree, subjective. And please note here that I am not putting the majority of the decisions that we make into this category nor am I even assigning a large minority to this. I am simply acknowledging the existence of such a category because Paul and Barnabas have happened upon such an issue that fits within this category. I'm going to demonstrate to you what I am saying here. I'm going to give you the biblical cases for both Paul's conclusion and Barnabas's. I'm going to start here with Paul, and there's not a lot of guesswork when it comes to him because he literally wrote the book on the qualifications for a minister. In fact, he wrote multiple books to this effect. And John Mark is acting here as a minister. So look first to First Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. That's a general introduction to this subject. And then he launches into the first qualification. And the overseer then must be above reproach. And already we have gone right off the rails, haven't we? When it comes to John Mark's situation. Being above reproach means not having a gross, flagrant sin of the kind that would mar a man's testimony to the point where his effectiveness as a minister would suffer. John Mark's desertion clearly qualifies as such a sin. And the reason why he's not above reproach is that when he deserted Paul and Barnabas, he transgressed against every command in Scripture to be faithful, to be immovable, to be steadfast, to be reliable, to be dependable, The work of Christ on earth is the most important work being done on earth. Therefore, if you're going to leave any post, it cannot be this one. And if you do, looking to verse 2 in that same chapter, you're not temperate, you're not prudent, you're not respectable. And on that last point, you can be sure that Paul most certainly does not respect John Mark as a result of his exodus. Also piecing this together with Paul's qualifications for ministers given in Titus 1, John Mark and at least the instance of his desertion certainly was not sensible in verse 8 of that chapter or devout or self-controlled, but he sure was self-willed, which Paul gives a prohibition against. And one may say, well, that seems like a really high standard. Yes, it is extraordinarily high. This is the highest office, and so it comes with the highest standard. Now, what we cannot know, and I will say I think has great bearing upon this whole consideration, is how many people exactly saw John Mark do this? abandon Paul and Barnabas. How many people besides them were aware that he did do this? And the reason why this matters so much is because reputation, as you just saw, in those texts that I raised, is a large aspect of this. And on this I tend to think, I don't have... Uh, conclusive evidence one way or another, but I tend to think there were probably not many besides these two men that were directly privy to this. I think the sphere of his sin was probably contained to more or less them. It is possible that John Mark went out in a blaze of glory, I guess, but desertion seems to be more an indication that one day he just up and left. So perhaps the damage to his reputation is more limited. Now, before we move on from considering Paul's position, I do want you to ask yourself, to what degree a man must be consistent with those qualifications in order to be a minister? And perhaps there is a purist among you who would shout out, to perfection, and I'm with it, man. I am. To that I say, great. But if you're in that camp, I would also say to you that because there is a lengthy waiting list, I would assume, you probably want to put your request into heaven now for Jesus incarnate to come fill your pulpit because he's the only one who does fit that bill perfectly. All right, furthermore, if perfection is requisite, then Paul doesn't match his own standards. So obviously then, those qualities laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are to be characteristically true of the minister. They are not to be perfectly true or else there would be no ministers. I oh, think of Peter. During the life of Jesus, our Lord would refer to Peter as either Peter meaning rock Or as Simon Bar-Jonah, when Peter was behaving like a child of God, he was rock. When he wasn't, he was son of some dude named John. On post-resurrection, though, in Peter's restoration, he did become, characteristically, though not even in this instance, perfectly, the rock that the Lord Jesus discipled him to be as we saw him struggle in the book of Galatians recently as we cross-referenced that book. So then one of the questions that Paul and Barnabas have to answer is, was John Mark's desertion indicative of his character generally, or was this one bad moment that shouldn't define the rest of his life and disqualify him permanently from ministry? Paul's answer on this is clear. So is Barnabas. And these two men are not answering that question in the same way. Barnabas, for his part, sees a Peter, for whom there is room and opportunity for restoration, whereas Paul sees another Demas, who deserted Paul for love of the world. And what is critical to see is that both of these men can take the tax that they have taken with Christ-like motivations. Does Christ, on the one side, highly esteem the work of his kingdom on earth? Yes. And so Paul's high standards are vindicated. But does Christ highly esteem a ministry of reconciliation and restitution? Yes, and praise God for it, or we'd all still be hellbound, wouldn't we? So then Barnabas is, from that perspective, vindicated. Now that that's settled, what about the outcome? Shouldn't the ultimate outcome be considered if we are determining who was right and who was wrong here? The answer is a resounding no. The outcome of their decisions have no bearing on the merit of their decisions because the decisions had to be made without the benefit of knowing the outcome. Paul couldn't say with certainty that John Mark would never become a faithful, trustworthy minister, although he obviously believed it. And Barnabas could not say with certainty that John Mark would become faithful, although he obviously believed that. Now, what was the outcome? Well, John Mark was gloriously restored, a point that later Paul himself would acknowledge in three separate epistles. And as for Paul and Barnabas, they mended their relationship, as indicated by Paul's validation of Barnabas as a minister of the gospel at a later point in 1 Corinthians. But again, neither Paul nor Barnabas could have known this, Humanly speaking, John Mark could have just as easily deserted Barnabas again, but this time with disastrous effect. These things have collateral damage. And that collateral damage is the sheep of the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, the process cannot be divorced from the outcome. If you're going to talk about outcomes, you've got to go uh, through point B. You've got to get from A to C. And you can't neglect that in your consideration you know what part of the process of John Mark being restored was it was Paul saying no no I will not so severe is his behavior I will not take him and I will not even take you if you take him do you think that that marked John Mark do you think that that likely contributed to his ultimate faithfulness that it helped him understand the severity of what he had actually done so that he never went there again I think so so what are the lessons for us well there are many First and most directly, this understanding needs to be applied to your ministers by you. Now, if your pastor makes a judgment that is clearly unbiblical, he is to be corrected. But if they are judging a matter that falls into this 5% or so of the issues, then the question for you ultimately is not really whether or not you agree with him. At least it shouldn't be. The question in this event, first and foremost, is, is there a biblical case for his decision? or for the elders, plural, decision. Maybe they weigh mercy more heavily than law, or vice versa. But can they have arrived at their conclusion, having approached the matter soberly and in good faith? Because if so, it is foolish and unfair to expect more of mere men than that. I'm speaking for myself. I'd happily defer to somebody else's judgment on those sorts of matters, and I would also happily defer to them the sleepless nights that come with them, and the anxiety also. I would happily let them weigh the damage that restoration will do to the body if the person at issue proves to have only feigned repentance or to let them consider the percentage chance that they will slip back into sin versus the chance that they won't. Is it 80-20? Is it 90-10? Is it 70-30 or 60-40? I let them consider whether or not their repentance is sincere or what the steps of reconciliation should look like or the extent to which they've damaged their reputation or the extent of the reputational harm done to Christ's church or whether mercy given will beget the giving of more mercy in the congregation, or whether it will simply beget an ungodly toleration of sin, or if more law will produce more holiness or more legalism, or if those sinned against need to know that they have a defender more than those who did the sinning need to know that they have a redeemer. But then you have to convey both of these things as a minister, considering they are both cardinal to the Christian faith. So how do you do that at the same time with all parties involved? Or where exactly is the red line? And how close to it is too close. How many times does a person have to nearly cross it or actually cross it in order to have disqualified them from service? And how far across the red line is far enough to demonstrate to the congregation that indeed they are disqualified so that the congregation is able to understand and so that they are not destroyed because the witness given lacks sufficient clarity. And I have not even yet addressed the process of introspection that every minister with a modicum of humility engages in when he is about to make decisions of this kind of importance that will affect the lives of individuals and the life of the church to grave degree. This process looks a little bit like this. Do I have a beam in my eye that I am not cognizant of? Do I even have the sufficient moral clarity to judge this matter Or am I self-deceived because of the blinding nature of my own sin? Because if my judgment is obscured by my sin, I will surely sin against Christ and his people. And then there's the matter of my own potential bias. Is my personal experience skewing my judgment? Ah, Paul, for example, has experienced the pain and hardship caused by the desertion of ministry partners. Has that jaded him? On the other hand, though, Barnabas is perhaps blinded by familial affection given that John Mark is his cousin, a fact which I would guess probably came up in the sharp disagreement between he and Paul, perhaps the suggestion of nepotism. These questions are not so easy to answer, are they? As much to weigh. So be gracious to those that have been given to you by God's grace as they serve you in this way. Again, we don't have to agree, but you do have to want to see in your leaders the earnest desire to love Jesus and his people. If they do not have that desire, you should be forced to recognize that because love believes all things and hopes all things. And you should also have the humility to know that hindsight is 2020, and you too are, per Paul's words, to the Lyceonians, just men and women of the same nature as we One more point on this. I would also say this doesn't just pertain to ministers. As an application of this to all Christians. Look, if you made a decision in the past that had uh, negative consequences on somebody that you love, and you made that decision without consulting Scripture, or you made it in a manner that was contrary to what you knew to be true from Scripture, then learn what you need to learn from that so that you don't harm people moving forward in the same way. But then leave that at the foot of the cross because Christ died for that sin too but if you're dealing with something along these lines Christian don't go on punishing yourself for not knowing what you couldn't have known in omniscience that's one of the non-communicable attributes of God he didn't give it to you so if you made a decision applying as best you could biblical principles and it went awry actions are your responsibility obedience is your responsibility outcomes belong to the Lord Point number two, different personalities and different perspectives are needed in Christ church for the same reason we both have a father and a mother. As was illustrated in my home recently, children are in sports, and uh, they thought that perhaps favoritism was being shown, as often is, on sports teams to certain kids uh, who weren't necessarily as good as them or were about the same level of skill because this parent donated to the team or or whatever. And so what does their mother give them? She gives them empathy. Is empathy needed? Sure. Yeah. Well that's not right. They shouldn't do that. What does their father say to them? Their father says to them, essentially, Life stinks, kid, that's the way this is gonna work for the duration. So here's what you do. You make sure that you are so much better than the other people on your team that whoever ends up being the collateral damage for that sort of favoritism, it ain't you, because it just can't be justified. Do they need that too? Sure. Similarly, Christ's body has many members, and some of these members are better suited to help others or at least better suited to help them in certain situations. And John Mark was greatly helped by Paul's unwavering standards for a minister and also Barnabas' eagerness to restore. And he in turn greatly helped Christ's church and he is greatly helping it in fact to this day. John Mark not only ministered with Paul and Barnabas, he also ministered with Peter as well. And in fact, Peter referred to John Mark as a spiritual son in 1 Peter 5. And no doubt it is through this relationship that John Mark goes on to acquire the source material to write that book that we refer to as the Gospel according to Mark, which many myself included, believed to be the foundational document of the other two synoptic gospels as well. So all that to say, brother, would we have been the worse off for having lost Mark in Acts 15, a.k.a. John Mark. And here is where the outcome matters. Outcomes don't matter in decision-making in real time. This is not to say that they're, uh, they're a non-factor. Not a non-factor, but they cannot be the primary factor because we cannot know them. We, of course, attempt to anticipate the outcome, the end result, and this factors into our decisions. But if our actions are first predicated on our theory of the results, then we're going to become prostitutes to what we hope or think will work instead of bond slaves to the commands of God. But for God himself, the results are not theoretical. Barnabas could not guarantee Mark's future usefulness, and he certainly could have anticipated the degree to which he would prove useful Nor could Paul have anticipated that John Mark would become what he did become. And if anybody here was there when he tucked tail and ran like that, I don't think we would have anticipated that either. But God took the influence and contributions of Paul and Barnabas and used their very different perspectives and approaches and priorities to form the soul of John Mark so that he would become the author of the gospel that bears his name. And we see in this an example of a truth at work in every good Christian church, and that is that the spiritual rearing of every single soul requires the contribution of many souls. A man who is in my position as the primary instrument of God in institutional discipleship needs to be able to effectively communicate to all of the people most of the time. And I do not say effectively communicate to everyone all of the time because that's not possible for a number of reasons. I have a communication style that is not actually best suited to everybody. Furthermore, communication is a two-way street, so you have to be reasonably conversant and able to handle the language. You also have to be paying attention. All of that factors in. But I hope that I am at least well suited for that or all of you are in trouble. What I, though, certainly am not best suited for is to personally communicate the gospel and kingdom living to every one of you as individuals, nor to personally disciple all of you best. For some of you, sure. And I have. But even then, not in all circumstances. I tilt a certain way. Personality-wise, I am much more like Paul than I am like Barnabas. I'd have done the same thing with John Mark. Perhaps not seven years ago, but now I have suffered the pain of keeping people in longer than they should have been kept in, so now I would certainly be slanted in that direction. Thing is, we can't all be Paul, because we need Barnabas too. We need both. We need all of us to disciple, all of us. In this church, there are those of you who, if asked, would say, Austin discipled me, and this is true, but it is not the whole truth even for you. You've been touched by other saints here, and in other churches prior to this, if you were not converted through this ministry in ways that you are, I'm sure, not even cognizant of. We are all the fruit of contributions too numerous to remember. From saints far and wide, all of whom had different gifts that were bought by the blood of Jesus and different experiences that had been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And we benefited from all of this. We need all of this. And that is why Christ made us his body. It is why he gave us his body. Now there was once a man who spiritually speaking was to his disciples mother and father and brother and sister or if you like fat and marrow or manna and quail. A man who possessed the fullness of God and man and so completely satisfied his followers. He was every dimension of the Christian faith in a single soul and his name was Jesus. And we are not him but we all have him by his spirit which indwells us. And though we don't reflect all the dimensions of God, we reflect different dimensions of his nature, or rather we have all of that in the fruit of the Spirit, but we don't reflect every aspect of that equally well. But it is in the constellation of all of our gifts that we as Christians have what we as Christians need in order to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So understand that that which makes us different is also that which makes us complete. Point number three, God sometimes indeed often uses division for multiplication. Look again to verses 39 through 41. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There are many beautiful aspects to this. But one is that at the beginning of this, uh, there was one young man benefiting from the tutelage of these two great leaders in the Christian faith, but now there are two that will have their faiths established as they never could have apart from the split. John Mark was done. He was out. But then Barnabas resurrected his ministry, and Silas was a gifted man, and now he will have those gifts honed by the apostle himself and brother, will Silas prove fruitful. Silas is one and the same as Silvanus, referenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. And it is believed that he scribed a couple of the books that Paul wrote that became canon. And None of this to say, by the way, that humanly speaking, Paul and Barnabas splitting was a good thing. It was their responsibility to resolve their issues, but they were unable to. I don't think we are to condemn them because of the reasons why they were unable to reconcile, but I also don't think that they should be commended. But you know who should be? God. God was in control this whole time. You know, there are certain plants that in order to propagate them, you split them in two. You take a shovel and you break them apart. There are certain plants that will be killed that way, but there are others where that sort of thing will turn division into multiplication. Now you may transplant that one half and it will grow. And overall, that plant will occupy much greater space, and that is what has happened here because of the providence of a sovereign God guiding and directing. I hope that this lesson was fruitful for you. I hope that you have learned something about making decisions in real time in a fallen world without the benefit of a clear mandate. And for those of you that do not know Christ, we pray that this morning you would turn to him this afternoon. We pray that you would be motivated by the same sorts of motivations that guided these men, same sorts of passion, which is for souls. And we seek the salvation of your soul. That you may be a part of this great heritage. And we are. That division yielded us as well. We are links in that chain. And we pray that you would turn in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus. That you would trust in his perfect life. And his perfect law keeping. That you would trust in the sufficiency of his death and the power of his resurrection. So that he would become fat and morrow and your elder brother, and your father, and your good shepherd. Salvation is to be found today. Seek it while you can. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example and all the lessons that may be gleaned from it. We pray that you give us grace to give each other grace. We pray that we remember that we are all just men. And I praise you and I thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.